This Day in Crime is released every day, Monday through Saturday. For ad-free listening and exclusive bonus content, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com or on Apple Podcasts. Let's start the show. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm Todd McComas, and it's Tuesday. I made a big move this morning. In an effort to lose a little weight, I decided to join the most expensive gym I could find. Now, I'll never step foot inside it, but now every month, I have 75 less dollars for food. So if you're trying to shed a few pounds, give it a shot. Now let's dive into some crime news. Here's Laura Benson. Video games save the day. A U.S. fugitive who faked his own death is brought back alive from Scotland. Pokey the murderer. Is Elon Musk on drugs? And a Florida power couple falls from grace. All this and more coming up on This Day in Crime. I'm Laura Benson, and today is Tuesday, January 9th, 2024. Newly released body cam footage shows the moment when an Indianola, Mississippi police officer shot and injured unarmed 11-year-old Adirian Murray last year, after the child had called 911 to his mother's home. To quickly recap this event, on May 20th of 2023, Adirian's mother, Nicola, asked her son to call police around 4 a.m. when the father of one of her other children showed up at their home. Two officers went to the home, and one kicked the front door in before Nicola Murray even opened it. She told them that the man they called about had left, and that there were three children inside. According to Nicola, Sergeant Greg Capers yelled into the home and ordered anyone who was inside to come out with their hands up. She said that Adirian Murray walked into the living room with nothing in his hands, and Capers shot him in the chest. I'll pause for a second to say that thankfully, Murray survived the shooting, but he did suffer from a collapsed lung, fractured ribs, and a lacerated liver, and he spent five days in the hospital. Murray's family filed a $5 million federal lawsuit in May against the police and Capers alleging excessive force and negligence. Days after the shooting, the family called on the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation to release the body cam footage of the incident, but they have not done that until now. It's pretty clear what happens in the footage if you watch it. It shows Capers walking up to the home with his gun drawn. Capers says, come on out, multiple times. Murray walks out with his hands up, and Capers immediately fires a shot, striking the young boy in the chest. A grand jury declined to indict Sergeant Greg Capers after the incident. He has not been charged with the shooting and continues to serve on the Indianola police force. The family is hoping that the newly released footage will help them as they dispute the jury's decision not to charge Capers. Police in northern Minnesota say three people are dead following a shooting on Monday evening at a Super 8 hotel in Cloquet. After an employee called the cops, Cloquet police arrived on the scene and temporarily issued a shelter-in-place order before locating the shooter, who was found dead outside the hotel's property from what police say appeared to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The suspect was confirmed on security cameras, but their motives are still unclear. Police continue to investigate, and they've stated that more information will be released tomorrow. 
A U.S. fugitive known as Nicholas Rossi, who is accused of faking his own death and fleeing the country to avoid rape charges, is in a Utah jail after he was extradited from Scotland last week. Rossi, whose legal name is Nicholas Oliverian, is charged with sexually assaulting a 21-year-old woman in Orem, Utah in 2008. He was not identified as a suspect until about a decade later due to a backlog of DNA test kits at the Utah State Crime Lab. Quick side note on this because it's really important. In 2015, the Utah State Crime Lab reported a backlog of 2,000 untested sexual assault test kits, many of which had been sitting for years. In 2017, the state legislature passed a law requiring that the labs work through these ASAP, and it took them three years to do so. Anyway, I digress. So Oliverdian was charged after the DNA test kit was finally assessed during this catch-up time. It was shortly after this charge came through that Oliverdian returned to his home state of Rhode Island and subsequently faked his death. An obituary published online claimed that he had died February 29th of 2020 of late-stage non-Hodgkin lymphoma. But state police and his former foster family questioned whether he was really dead. The following year, he was recognized in a Glasgow hospital while receiving treatment for COVID-19, though he denied his identity and claimed he was an Irish orphan named Arthur Knight. In fact, the 36-year-old has used at least 10 different aliases on his run from the law. He was finally booked Friday afternoon into the Davis County Jail, and he will likely be transferred to Utah County in the coming days, where he'll stand trial for felony rape charges. Oh, he also faces another felony rape charge in Salt Lake County, where prosecutors say he sexually assaulted a 26-year-old former girlfriend after an argument, also in 2008. He has multiple other complaints against him in Rhode Island and Ohio for alleged domestic violence, sexual abuse, and fraud. All I want to say is that I'm glad that Utah has finally gotten its shit together to hold people accountable, and I'm looking forward to hearing about all the other scumbags who are going to be charged because they're finally checking these DNA test kits. Speaking of non-consensual sexual activity, let's head over to Florida for some fun news from the GOP. On Monday, 200 members of Florida's Republican Party voted to boot Chairman Christian Ziegler after months of pressing him to resign. Ziegler, who's 40, had been chairman since February of 2023, and he was finally voted out of office due to sexual assault allegations that arose in the fall. In October, Ziegler was accused of sexual battery and rape by a Sarasota County woman who's requested to stay anonymous to the public. Ziegler denies the allegation and is yet to be officially charged, but he has been under police investigation and scrutiny from his party ever since. Text messages and police interviews revealed that the woman, Christian Ziegler, and his wife, Bridget Ziegler, had formally had a consensual three-way sexual encounter, fun, and had set up another threesome on October 2nd, but Bridget decided to cancel. Though the shindig had been canceled, Christian reportedly went to the woman's home on the second regardless, and he claims they had consensual sex, while she states that he arrived uninvited and raped her. According to a search warrant affidavit obtained through a public records request by the nonprofit Florida Center for Government Accountability, when Ziegler had texted the woman that his wife could no longer make it, she wrote back, quote, Sorry, I was mostly in it for her. Womp womp. Not taking no for an answer, Ziegler is now in some really hot water. Furthermore, he admitted to filming the event, 
and is currently under investigation for video voyeurism as police are trying to obtain the video, which should really clear things up for everyone. Oh, I should mention quickly that Christian and his wife Bridget are a bit of a political power couple in the Republican Party in Florida. Miss Siegler, who's 41, is a conservative activist who's promoted anti-LGBTQ policies in schools, and she co-founded the right-wing group Moms for Liberty. Bridget has also been pressured to step down from the Sarasota County School Board, and she's been voted out four to one, the one being her voting for herself to stay on. The school board can't forcibly remove her, but I bet those meetings are awfully tense. And I bet people have a lot of questions they'd like to ask. Elon Musk is in a bit of a spat with the Wall Street Journal at the moment, which has published two back-to-back articles about the executive's alleged illegal drug use. Now, like all news nowadays, the Wall Street Journal has a paywall for any of their articles, but I was enticed by two back-to-back Elon Musk drug articles, so I signed up so you don't have to. Over the weekend, the journal published an article that laid it all out there, stating that, quote, the world's wealthiest person has used LSD, cocaine, ecstasy, ketamine, and psychedelic mushrooms, often at private parties around the world. Full stop. There are multiple specific individual events cited and specific people who reported either partaking with Musk or witnessing his use, including family members and former colleagues. A number of former colleagues have also described his volatile behavior as frustrating and exasperating and have alluded to drug use as a contributing factor. Illegal drug use would likely be a violation of federal policies that could jeopardize SpaceX's billions of dollars in government contracts. Musk is intrinsic to the value of his companies, and this potentially puts about $1 trillion at risk of assets held by investors, tens of thousands of jobs, and big parts of the U.S. space program. Though Musk's attorney, Alex Spiro, said that Musk is regularly and randomly drug tested at SpaceX and has never failed a test, Musk himself declined to comment. He did, however, head over to Twitter, I mean, X, the social platform formerly known as Twitter, to assert that he has been randomly drug tested at NASA for three years and he's always come up clean. On Monday, the Wall Street Journal published a second article about how miffed Musk was and stated that they stand by their reporting. So I'll just check back tomorrow to see if they publish a third article with more of his tweets or maybe some art he made while he was tripping on LSD. Who knows? We'll be right back after I tell you about something that's going to make your life way better. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. 
I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Three Virginia cold case homicides, including two of the infamous Colonial Parkway murders, have finally been closed this week, thanks to extensive investigation by the Virginia State Police Department. On Monday, Virginia State Police identified the suspect as Alan W. Wilmer Sr., a small-time fisherman who died in 2017 at the age of 63. Police stated that if Wilmer were still alive, he would be charged with the three homicides, and he's currently being investigated on a number of additional killings. For those of you who don't know, the Colonial Parkway murders involved the deaths of three couples and the suspected death of a fourth couple whose bodies were never recovered. The killings occurred between 1986 and 1989 on or near a scenic drive that connects Jamestown, Williamsburg, and Yorktown in southeastern Virginia. After obtaining Wilmer's DNA when he died in 2017, investigators were able to link him to one of the Colonial Parkway events, the 1987 double murder of David Knobling and Robin Edwards in the Isle of Wight County. Investigators are actively pursuing leads on the other killings, and they haven't ruled anything out yet. They're still working to reconstruct his movement and encounters with others during his lifetime. Wilmer was also identified as the suspect in the 1989 slaying of Teresa Lynn Spa Howell, who is 29 in the city of Hampton. Uh, Her death is not linked to the Colonial Parkway killings other than the connection to Wilmer, which obviously is a big one. A few additional disturbing details that I wanted to share about Wilmer is that he, first of all, went by the nickname Pokey, and he drove a Dodge Fargo pickup truck with the license plate, all capital letters, M-RAW, E-M-R-A-W. Ew. Ew, 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 ew. All right, that's almost all I've got for you, but before I leave today, I wanted to wrap up with some good news about video games. This happened last week, but we were all busy recapping 2023 last week, so I'm going to share this with you today. A 16-year-old girl from Ohio who was reported missing on December 28th was found outside of Tampa, Florida after she logged into her World of Warcraft account from that location. I'm not entirely sure how they knew that her World of Warcraft login was hers, but it's pretty cool. The FBI and local authorities worked together and they found the team. They arrested 31-year-old Thomas Ebersole, who initially denied knowing the girl, but he soon shared that the two had a romantic relationship, and he had planned to hide her in his home in Florida until they could marry. 
He now faces charges of interfering with child custody, traveling to meet a minor to engage in sexual activity, and sheltering an unmarried minor. The good news is the teen seems to be physically unharmed, but the bad news is that this type of online predatory behavior towards minors is on the rise in general. According to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, reports of online enticement of children for sexual acts have grown by 82% since 2021 and 113% since 2020. I suppose I'm not really leaving you on a particularly high note with that, but it is a good word of warning. Maybe just a good reminder. You never know who you're talking to online, and maybe we should all just go back to playing board games instead, or take a walk outside. It's a lot less risky. Well, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed this day in crime, and I will see you again on Thursday for another installment of Headlines. This Day in Crime is a production of Tenderfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey, produced in association with Bernie Mountain Productions. Sources for today's episode and full credits can be found in the show notes, and you can follow us on social media at This Day in Crime. We're back at it tomorrow. Thanks for listening.